Back in December, I left my kids and my husband at home, and I flew off to the Bahamas. Hi, I was just checking in. Did you have a come over here? I was checking in. Here you go. Thank you so much, Alana. Thank you. I don't know why she called me Alana, but whatever. I recorded the voice memo that I'm about to play you when I was sitting on the ground outside the airport bathroom. So I'm about to board a flight to the Bahamas without my kids. And I really don't want to post it to Instagram because I feel like other mothers are going to judge me for being a shitty mom who takes a vacation and leaves her kids at home. I didn't even bring my husband. I was leaving home because I was exhausted. I was worn down. I needed a mental health break as much as I don't love the words mental health break. See, my book, my last novel that I talk about all the time, came out in October. And the launch for it was wonderful. But I was also working 80 hours a week to promote it while making podcasts and parenting through a never-ending pandemic, and I felt like my brain was simultaneously on fire and broken into a million pieces. So when a friend told me she had a free hotel room on a tropical island, I got the hell out of town. And of course, the second that I was settled on the beach wearing my mom bathing suit that covers my belly pooch with an ice-cold rum daiquiri and two of my oldest and closest girlfriends, I broke down a little. I broke down and I admitted that I wasn't doing as great as Instagram probably made my life look, that I was burnt out and anxious, and I felt like I was failing at everything. I told them my mental health wasn't in a great place, and I just didn't know how to fix it. First off, you guys are some of my best friends in the whole world, and we never talk about mental health. No, and actually none of my girlfriends in Virginia ever talked about it until I asked them if anyone had a recommendation for a psychiatrist. And everyone, and all of a sudden, it was like a watershed. It's a watershed, right? It's like, oh, I'm taking these pills, or... I can't sleep. Or, I can't or, sleep, or... or, or our marriage is... We're in therapy. Well, and also, like, the healthcare system is not great. It's not, like, I was on... I was trying to get a therapist for, like, six months. Oh, yeah, and there's none of them that take your insurance. None of them will take your insurance. And you can't get an no. appointment for, like, no. months out. And especially for moms, I think. Yeah. I mean, for the past month, I worked myself to death launching that book. And I was exhausted. And then I'm still, like, ashamed to take a break away from my children and my family and come here. And also, like, to tell anyone that I was doing that. I'm like, no, you're a giant pussy for doing this. Why can't you just suck it up and continue to work 24 hours a day and kill yourself in a dying industry? You can't even, like give it to someone else you've got to like make sure that there's a that you get in the village I love cocktails guys there was a guy named Orlando who kept walking down the beach and yelling cocktails and we kept ordering this drink from him called the Miami Vice 
It's part daiquiri, part margarita, part liquid brain death. And after a couple of those, we all admitted that lately, at least in the past year or so, all three of us get a lot of our mental health care from Instagram. I follow mental health influencers, like multiple of them, because they they give me a different perspective that I don't get anywhere else. And and I need that because I can't find it. I can't can't find it. Even talking to my own psychiatrist or my own, you know, uh, therapist, like I don't get differing perspectives on this because it's so hush. So I have to follow mental health influencers on Instagram because they... They give you those other things to think about. They give you these other coping mechanisms. And tools, and tools. right? Like they become a part of your village. They, right. They, that's where I'm going to find my village. So yeah. I would love to interject on that too because I think that... If you couldn't hear Sarah over the pounding surf, she said, that's where I'm going to find my village. I'm going to find my village on Instagram. And I kept thinking about that. I kept thinking about searching for a village of mental health support on social media. Finding help on Instagram. I'm Dr. Jess. Welcome to this session of Cup of Optimism. For signs you do not know you have high-functioning anxiety, you appear... Hold on a second. Am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? Are you being toxic? Oh no. See, accountability works both ways. It's become a thing because women don't have a village of mental health support that is accessible and affordable. So creators on Instagram have filled that gap in what society should be giving us. For better or worse. Some of the mental health advice on social media is great. It's invaluable, useful, maybe even life-changing. And some of it's a lot of bullshit. Then, like a lot of things, some of it could be downright dangerous. If there's a tightrope of 50% good, 50% can do public harm, I feel like mental health influencers kind of thread that line and lean towards the harm side. Mothers, we are the hardest on ourselves and the hardest on each other. Moms are desperate for support and there's not a lot of options for the type of support people really need. Grab a Miami Vice and buckle up. Because I'm Joe Piazza, and I'm taking you under the influence. Where's that cup from? Episode three. Where's my fucking village? I want to start this episode by stating the obvious. None of us are okay. And especially, especially mothers. Mothers are not okay. With the pandemic, the lack of a social safety net, don't even get me started on the patriarchy and everything else that mothers face on a day-to-day basis. We are hands down in a maternal mental health crisis at the moment. We're seeing this with our colleagues in the field, across the city, across the state, and across the nation. That's Paige Bellenbaum. She's the founding director of the Motherhood Center in New York City. I found her through a recent New York Magazine article that actually announced that we are in the midst of a maternal mental health crisis. 
I think sometimes mothers, we are the hardest on ourselves and the hardest on each other to continue to feed into the myth because no one's given us permission to say, you know what? This sucks. This is really hard. Yeah, I think my baby's cute. And then the rest of the time, I feel like I made a huge mistake and I miss my old life. It's so unfortunate that we live in this very romanticized version of motherhood, that we are spoon fed this interpretation of what is meant to be, quote unquote, the best time of our life. And when we go into it with that expectation, it's so understandable how how we all fall short of it, because that is not the truth. Is the traditional system failing us? Emphatically, no, they're not doing enough. And yes, the healthcare system is failing our new and expecting mothers, which really are the backbone of society. When we look at other countries and the way that they respond to support and provide safety nets for perinatal women and birthing parents, America really is probably the last uh, in ranking um, as prioritizing one of the most important subsets of our population, ranging from not providing adequate health care, but in particular, mental health care. I just want to say that I also truly believe that most humans right now are in the midst of a mental health crisis, not just mothers. We've not at all fully grasped what the past two years of pandemic has done to us. But again, we know from the numbers, women, especially mothers, were the heaviest hit. More often than not, we tend to bear the emotional labor of the other members of our families. And I think all of us, all women, have been spoon-fed romanticized versions of what womanhood should be, and that those versions are mostly bullshit. So, of course, of course, So many of us feel like we don't measure up most of the time. A lot of what we're focusing on in this episode is because of the systemic failures to help women with our mental health. Are you seeing a lot more women turn to social media for help, to look to Instagram, to look for other women's stories, but then also, I mean, so like therapists on Instagram, what are you seeing? I'm seeing a lot of people understandably wanting a quick fix, right? We all do. For anyone out there who's experienced mental illness or mental health struggles or challenges, we just want to feel better as quickly as we can. But I think to your point is that, yes, many, many women in contemporary society today are looking to social media platforms to get their information. So it's not just my friend group. It's a lot of people. A lot, a lot, a lot of people are turning to social media for self-help and mental health advice because right now, no one is okay. Even Glynis. Glynis, the most together person that I know, is not totally okay. But thankfully, she was recently able to get herself the unicorn of the healthcare system. I just started back up again yesterday with a new therapist who I really like. I um, I still can't find a therapist down in Philly. All the good therapists are booked for years and years. And everyone told me they follow mental health influencers and I don't follow any. So, But I do. Now, when I got home from my very refreshing mental health break, vacation without my kids, without my husband. What are you talking about? Where did you go? I went to the Bahamas. When? In December. You went to the Bahamas by yourself? Yeah, with two of my girlfriends from college. You always go to these places and I don't find out about them until you're back. You could because disappear I don't like post- Don Draper and I would literally have no idea. 
Yeah, that's me. Deadbeat dad Don Draper. Do you see right now why I didn't tell people about this? Just out there screwing my secretary, not paying attention to my children. When I got home, I asked everyone on my Instagram who they follow on social media for their mental health, and I got 2,000 responses. Wow. 2,000. Oh my God, you have to, have to follow at Big Little Feelings. It will change your life. The holistic psychologist is amazing. I can't start my day without her. Immediately follow at your diagnosis. Like, that's more than I've gotten for anything. I mean, this takes us all the way back to the very beginning of why do people follow mom influencers, all the way back to you on the floor with B feeling lonely and looking to your phone. It doesn't surprise me that everyone's following it for exactly the same reason as everything else that's happening on Instagram, which is it's it's hard. To, it's expensive. Therapy is expensive. It's expensive. And some of these people that people told me to follow are actual therapists, clinical psychiatrists or clinical psychologists. But a lot of them are just what's being referred to now as comfort creators, creators who make content that makes you feel better. Did you, did you have any idea this was a thing? Okay. I've heard, I don't understand what it is. I've heard the phrase. I've never figured out what people are talking about. Oh, good. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you because there was a whole article in the New York times about it. And I called the dude who wrote it. Oh, the piece is called what is a comfort creator? And, you know, I think it's, I think the reason we went with that headline is because it's a term that is like pretty widely understood by a lot of people like under the age of say like 22 and pretty widely not understood at all by anyone older. So it kind of felt like we needed to just go with like a straight up explainer because it's just like, it's a new concept and it's like a very generationally distinct concept. So that was Ezra Marcus and he Mm -hmm. wrote the New York Times piece explaining comfort creators to the olds like us. So just out of curiosity, because I don't like to be referred to as the old since I feel mm-hmm. quite young. Mm-hmm. How actual old is he? Definitely. I did not ask his age because that I feel like is litigious these days, but he <laughs> is probably about half of our age-ish. Wow. Okay. And whatever. Whatever. They know stuff. I asked him to break it down. What is a comfort creator in the world of digital content? I mean, I think the first thing to understand about it is that it's really not something new in its like most fundamental form. Everybody, like, as far back as there's been media, I would say, people have watched media, to consumed it, read books, looked at cave paintings, whatever, to feel some sense of comfort, to feel some sense of like, take your mind off your own problems, relax, enjoy a story. That's it. It's the, that's the first time I'd heard those words, comfort creator. But it made so much sense about who we want to follow on social media because all of us are looking for a way to feel better. I think we're all on the brink of a mental health crisis at this point. And so we're seeking comfort, but we're also seeking expertise. And I think a lot of us are seeking actual therapy on the social medias. So after I crowdsourced everyone for who they follow for mental health, I got like thousands, thousands of of names, and most of them don't even overlap. There are so many that there's not even repeats, except for one. Please don't say Gwyneth Paltrow. Dr. Becky. (laughs) I've never heard of her, but 
is she a real doctor? She's a, yeah, she she is. She's she's a real doctor. Real real doctor, Dr. Becky Kennedy, and she came up a ton. And so she came up so much that we're going to talk to her. Of course we are. We're going to talk to her right after the break. I'm Dr. Becky, and I'm so glad you're here. Your being here lets me know you're someone who's willing to reflect, consider new ideas, and try new things. And that makes you pretty brave and awesome in my book. I know there's a lot of content here, so let me break it down for you. If you're a mother of a certain age, then you have probably already heard of Dr. Becky. She is a clinical psychologist and a mom of three with nearly a million Instagram followers who hang on her every word. I'm going to quote a New York Times profile of Dr. Becky here. Quote, For many millennials, the clinical psychologist Becky Kennedy, a.k.a. Dr. Becky, is the person whom they trust. Dr. Becky gives parenting advice that is truly mental health help for parents. I have friends who only follow like five people on Instagram, and Dr. Becky is one of them. Here is just a little snippet of some Dr. Becky wisdom. Let's be the generation to change the narrative that being a good mom means being a martyr. We can do this in two ways. Number one, our self-talk. Remind yourself that when you're taking care of yourself, you're still a good parent. It might sound like this. I'm a good parent who's choosing to sit on the couch and relax and restore instead of cleaning up the mess around me. This is a way I'm prioritizing myself. Number two, share. Now, Dr. Becky cannot see a million patients in a day, a week, a year, or her entire life, and most of them probably couldn't travel all the way to New York City to meet her in person. But a million people, a million followers on social media, can benefit from her expertise anywhere, anytime, from the comfort of their phones. And there's something great about that. If we really are in the midst of a mental health crisis, then we need all the tools and all the help we can get. So we put out a call on my Instagram. We're like, tell us who you follow for mental health help. And didn't clarify that, really. I think I said mental health influencer. And we got 2,000 responses and counting. They're still coming in. But probably at least 25% of those responses were you. Oh, I know. Well, yeah. And and like and most of them did not overlap. You were the only name that came up time and time again, which is very very interesting. It's been a wild journey. I don't even know what Instagram was. I mean, I knew what it was, but I wasn't on it when I started and it only start I only put something out for like I thought I was working on something else. I did all this writing and then I abandoned the product I thought I was going to create and then my husband was like, "Well, you have all this stuff written on your computer. Like what are you going to do with it?" And my sister said to put it on Instagram. And I was like, I don't even know how to do that. She's like, I'll show you how to work it. And then here I am. And then here you so are. It's, just, you are. it's amazing. Yeah. And I think it speaks to the fact that people are so hungry for this kind of help, this kind of advice. I mean, we're just desperate for it. What do you think about that? The kind of really organic kind of growth I think I've seen around the community that exists on my Instagram speaks to the fact that people and my community is definitely majority women and moms, that moms are desperate for support and so much is demanded of us and there's not a lot of options for the type of support people really need and when they find it, 
they they want more of it and they want more of each other. Which parts of your advice resonate the most with your audience? I and mean, what do they what do they seem to to crave the most of? Such a good question. I I think the thing that resonates the most is anything around the theme of codependency in adults and women reclaiming their space, their desire, and their right to want things for themselves. Yeah, I want all those things. Everything you just said. I'm like, yep, yes, yes. And <gasps> I'm going to FedEx it to you. Yes, after yes, just, just, just put it in a box and to me, please. I have absolutely no doubt that Dr. Becky is helping people. And I think it is so, so, so important that she's helping women specifically realize what they need and what they want and how to get those things. But I also wondered where Becky sees herself in this whole ecosystem universe of mental health content online. How does she view the community itself? I have mixed thoughts on, you know, people looking for mental health help on Instagram because you're you're a clinical psychologist with a PhD. There's a lot of people who aren't. And so how can you vet what is what is real and good and accurate? And how do you even define what is real and good and accurate? But then at the same time, you can reach, you have nearly a million followers. You're helping nearly a million people a day. That wouldn't be possible without this platform. So for me, I'm just like, I have so many mixed up feelings. Now I need to see, now I need a psychologist to help me sort through my mixed feelings. I agree. I mean, you know, certainly the impact is real and it's substantial. And I am such a proponent of individual therapy and meeting with someone one-on-one and that person getting to know your personal, intimate story. Nothing can replace that. So maybe this is, uh, I'm laughing because I I do often find myself thinking, oh, two things are true, right? Right? Maybe that's what you're saying. Two things are true. And I've heard you say that on your podcast before. And I think that that is really the case when it comes to mental health influencing on Instagram. Two things are true. And and I love the idea, and people have said this to me, that maybe whether it's my Instagram or any Instagram that, you know, connects with you, that that helps you, that that clears away some of the shame, the shame that is so sticky and keeps us in one place and prevents our kind of movement and growth. If it can clear away some of that shame or give you a different way to see something, sometimes that's the thing you need to make the call to, whether it's a call to a friend or it's a call to a therapist, it's that kind of, that call to something more individualized and personal. And if that's what's happening when people are in Instagram, then that that's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Do you have your own mental health folks that you follow on the Instagram? You don't have to name anyone by names, but are, I mean, do, do you, guru of mental health on Instagram, do you follow people for your own mental health? I, you know, I, I, I'm not a big consumer of Instagram. Oh, interesting. I, I, I'm not, but I find Instagram really tricky. I mean, I obviously love Instagram and it's been great for me. And, you know, I definitely think it can steal our attention. It does. And it can make us go down a rabbit hole that we don't intend to go down. So for my mental health, I'm in weekly therapy. My therapist is not on Instagram. And that therapy 
is kind of very focused and infused by mindfulness and slowing down and somatically oriented work, which I need to slow down my kind of frenetic thoughts. Do you think it's healthier? I mean, do you think that Instagram, I mean, we just talked about, again, two things can be true. Like it's making a lot of what we find on Instagram is helpful. It's helpful to us. But is it also detrimental for our mental health when when you're on it too much? What are you seeing there? I think it's so hard because when we say Instagram, we're saying one thing. Although I really have found that there are like at least two versions of Instagram. I feel like there's Instagram that is totally mindless, that's totally aspirational, that's very, oh my goodness, my life sucks compared to this person's life. There's that Instagram. And then there's also Instagram that's very educational. It's really hard work to consume Instagram with intentionality. And because it's not designed to do that. So so I think for me, what I try to do, and definitely I find myself on there for longer than I want to at times. But what I try to do is ask myself, right, like, what am I what am I looking for here? And who am I following? And how many of those aspirational, I'm gonna end up feeling bad about myself, but I can't tear my eyes away from the screen. How many of those accounts can I can I follow? As Dr. Kennedy said, two things can be true. Instagram can be wonderful for mental health, and it can also be very bad for mental health. The important thing here is intentionality. Knowing who your comfort creator is instead of that person that you hate follow that is constantly making you feel bad about yourself. Choosing the mental health professional who gives you real tips and real advice to feel better and not the one spewing dangerous garbage. And ultimately, at the end of the day, Isn't it fucking great that women are talking about our own specific mental health struggles out in the open, out to all all the other peoples? A century ago, they'd be throwing us in a sanitarium. And a century before that, they'd be burning us at the fucking stake for having a single panic attack. So there's our answer, right? There's my answer. Easy peasy. Problem solved. As long as we know what we're looking for, what we're looking at... This social media mental health thing is completely revolutionary. It'll change the world. Wrong. Wrong. Because the history we're grappling with here isn't as young as social media. It's as old as the hills. It's older than my ovaries, which are really, really old. Glennis, of course, is the one who woke me up to that. Because she's always making me smarter. When you say Dr. Becky, the first thing that flies into my head is um, Sleepless in Seattle, the call-in oh, radio show. Yes. Who are they calling again? What's I, Her name just fell out of my head. Dr. Marsha Fieldstone. And obviously there's Dr. Ruth that we grew up with. And, and last year I was watching Frasier during the most anxiety-ridden days just to calm my brain down. This feels like a natural extension of call-in radio, which is mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you can mm-hmm, call mm-hmm, in anonymously mm-hmm. There's a general response and you don't have to pay. Like it, this feels like it's like oh a, my an explosion of it. Does I, that res- I never made this connection. No, this, me either. This is the natural evolution of call-in radio. It's Dr. Ruth. It's Dr. Marsha Fieldstone. This is Fraser Crane. I'm listening. <gasps> it is. Yeah. That's what it feels like. You're like you're dial, you dial in, and instead of that, you know, they provide it to you and maybe leave a comment. Duh. 
media has been conflating self-help, comfort, and real medical help for a very long time. Which is why it can be really hard to stop looking to the most readily available source for help. It's just part of human nature. I'm going to go behind the scenes here and do my little research thing. And with some podcast audio magic, after the break, we're going to tell you the history of self-help and why it's always hovered between the line of very helpful and useful and wonderful and downright dangerous. Oh, oh, ooh. So we've learned by now that there are a lot of ways people go online to deal with the mental health crisis that we're currently in. You can turn to your comfort creator of choice just to get your mind off things. You can turn to self-care influencers to figure out how to loofah your troubles away. There's plenty of self-help influencers. Or you can always turn to the people who market themselves as mental health professionals. Now, like most things, this isn't new. There's nothing new under the sun, my friends. And it goes back way further than Glennis and I even posited when we started talking about all the call-in radio shows. See, human beings have this condition. We're always looking for answers about how we can feel better and improve ourselves. Example one, so much of the philosophy behind all religions. But our search for betterment really found commercial potential in the mid-19th century when a guy named Samuel Smiles, which is seriously the best 19th century influencer name that I've ever heard, and I couldn't make it up if I wanted to, published a book called simply Self-Help. And let's be honest here, self-help really is the commercialization of mental health care. The book Self-Help came out in 1859, and it's based on a series of lectures that Smiles gave to a group of working-class men in Leeds who'd formed their own club for self-improvement. In the preface, Smiles described these men and their reaction to being improved. He could not fail to be touched by the admirable self-helping spirit which they had displayed. And though entertaining but slight faith in popular lecturing, He felt that a few words of encouragement, honestly and sincerely uttered, might not be without some good effect. And in this spirit, he addressed them on more than one occasion, citing examples of what other men had done, as illustrations of what each might, in a greater or less degree, do for himself. See? Look at that. We have always put faith in others to tell us what to do to feel better. 20,000 copies sold in the first year, and over a quarter of a million by 1905. According to historian Asa Briggs, those numbers, quote, exceeded those of the great 19th century novels. Take that, Dickens. On top of that, the book was translated into multiple languages. 
the historian also said, quote, cholera itself could have traveled no faster. You know, cholera, the epidemic of the day. Yeah, COVID probably could have traveled no faster than some modern-day influencers. Self-help advice. But that, well, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. But back in the 19th century, our man Smiles was a self-improvement celebrity. But of course, that is far, 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 far from the last self-help book. Almost 200 years later, self-help is still one of the most popular and profitable forms of media. The market for self-help books, TV shows, workshops, and everything else that exists in this industry is predicted to be worth $14 billion by 2025. And it comes in so many different varieties. Lots and lots of different flavors. Self-help is what often happens when the establishment, when the traditional healthcare system is not helping us get the things that we need. And there are people in this industry that are truly out there to do good in the world. I really, I really believe that. I do. It's not bullshit. As skeptical as Sam was about Dr. Marsha Fieldstone in Sleepless in Seattle, he got his happy ending. He ended up on the top of the Empire State Building with Meg Ryan. That was a nice thing. Now, you might be saying, Joe, that's just a movie. Marsha Fieldstone's not a real person. Well, that is the genius of Nora Ephron. She didn't make Dr. Marsha Fieldstone up out of whole cloth. There is a real Dr. Marsha, and her name is Delilah. You've probably heard Delilah. She is a radio legend who has been listening to people call in with stories of love, hurt, and heartbreak for years. Delilah got me through three breakups in the 90s, listening to her on B101 after I got dumped in the parking lot of a Chick-fil-A. True story. Through her call-in radio show, Delilah helps people through their hard times, and she takes that job so incredibly seriously. I know she does, because I talked to her about the great responsibility that she has with people's hearts. And uh, I can't help it. I cannot help myself. If, if I see somebody struggling, whether it's on roller skates or in life or with a breakup or with an addiction, I got to insert myself. Yeah. I, I've gone to therapy for it. <laughs> what, did, what, did your, what did your therapist tell you? I'm a raging codependent and that I need to just, you know, stay in my lane and mind my business. But I can't. If I see somebody who's hurting, I am compelled to go help. And are there any really memorable moments from the show of people that, you know, just were really some of the people who call are in dire straits, they're in dire need of help? Well, if somebody is really in dire straits, I will stay on the phone with them. And we have actually had to call, you know, police to go do welfare checks on listeners. I will just keep them on the phone as long as I can and get as much information as I can. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a counselor. I don't pretend to be. So there have been situations that were way out of my league. So we'll, you know, call for help. So if somebody is in crisis, we can immediately look up phone numbers and places to call in their area so they can get help. I have a personal rule that I don't ever put anything on the air that might hurt somebody. Mm. So if somebody calls and shares something that could hurt their partner or hurt their teenager, if they were listening, I had a woman call and share some really horrific things about her husband 
but they have teenage kids. How horrible would that be if you were listening and realized that was your dad? Oh, oh. So I, it might be great radio, but if it's going to hurt somebody's heart, I'm not going to use it. You take this responsibility really seriously. You, you recognize what a responsibility it is to care for someone's heart like this, their heart and their mind. Yeah, because if somebody's going to trust me enough to call me and say, I'm in a crisis, that's a trust. They're putting their trust in me. I can't just then think, oh, this will be great radio. That's evil. It's evil. That's evil. But it happens in the world of it radio. It happens because, yeah. but it, if your motivation is to get ratings, you don't care if you do evil. You don't care if you harm somebody. But I have a higher calling and a higher power I'm going to have to stand and face someday. And I don't want him to say, why did you, you know, make light of this person who just called and told you their world fell apart? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, why would you do that? It's hard to imagine people wanting to do that, but it happens. And that's why we're here. We're here interrogating this kind of media because it is so tricky, because it can go bad really quickly. Mental health horror stories can actually play out in real time on the radio, on social media, on television. Delilah works really hard to make sure that her content doesn't hurt anyone. But it's very easy to sensationalize stories when you want things like followers. Or, in another form of media, ratings. Next Wednesday night. Let's talk about someone named Dr. Phil for a second. Millions of audience members take what Dr. Phil says very, very seriously. Hold on for a second. I need to try to remember what kind of doctor Dr. Phil is exactly. Let me type this into the Googles. All right, here I am on Wikipedia. Dr. Phil holds a doctorate, it's fancy, in clinical psychology. Although, oh, interesting. He ceased renewing his license to practice psychology in 2006. I'm not the first one to question Dr. Phil's credentials and credibility. Last year, BuzzFeed News published an article called Dr. Do Nothing, written by Sachi Cole. It makes the case that Dr. Phil McGraw regularly exploits the guests experiencing the worst moments of their lives for sheer entertainment. It reads, Mental health care around the country is lacking. Affordable care is hard to access, and that's if you have any coverage at all. Television therapy, then, is what people get instead. And McGraw doesn't just give bad advice, but he openly mocks the people coming to him for help. What may have started as a show intended to make therapy and open communication more accessible to people at home has warped into a creepy, exploitative program. The article concludes... Good mental health care is hard to identify, but it rarely involves making your patients go viral, attempting some form of diagnosis of a guest behavior, or shaming women for sex work. It also likely does not include putting your name on a line of ineffective weight loss products, or arguing that maybe quarantine is a bad idea because people die all the time from all sorts of things. He benefits from his viewers not knowing any better. This is not true mental health help not even real self-help. 
But because life is hard and humans are always looking for answers to why terrible things happen and how to cope with those terrible things, over the past hundred years, self-help, mental health help, and horror porn, like Dr. Phil, have become conflated into this very messy Venn diagram. Now add social media into that mix. We're talking about quite a clusterfuck, my friends. Quite a clusterfuck. Social media presents a whole new set of challenges that we have to look out for. Not everyone is Dr. Becky. It's even harder to regulate what happens on social media than it is on radio or TV. It's easy to start as Delilah, but slip down the path of a Dr. Phil. That's a lot of power. And it reminds me of something Lindsay Coughlin said a few episodes ago. That most influencers, most influencers on Instagram and social media do not even realize how much power they have. It is such a huge responsibility to have a platform like that. And literally everything and anything you post about or talk about, some people are truly taking that all in. And I don't know that everybody takes it as seriously as it is. And influencers taking it upon themselves to join the ranks of self-help gurus, teachers, sometimes supposedly doctors, they're often stringing along an audience who is incredibly vulnerable. And the veil between creator and consumer on social media is so, so thin. You should stop, stop all the efforting. Maybe you're a student and you're in college or you're an employer and you're realizing that this isn't really the career that you want, this isn't really the degree that you want. Stop. Or you know that everything you that you're trying to make happen, just stop. Is this a person I can share with? Is this the type of response that I want to have when I have good news? When we were researching this episode, I talked to a lot of therapists who were very, very concerned about what is going to happen when so many people are seeking actual, real mental health treatment on social media. And one of them was Erin Jones. Erin is a trauma therapist who isn't practicing right now because she's taken some time away to be a mom, but she messaged me to tell me that even as someone trained in trauma therapy, a lot of the mental health content on Instagram makes her feel worse on a daily basis. She was watching something on social just the other day. And this person was a psychiatrist, and she was just talking about depression and trauma education and mental health education, which is great. I think education is great. But after just looking at 10 to 20 TikToks of her describing the depression cycle and the spiral, I started to feel really bad. And I was like, why does this making me feel so bad? And I realized I was experience I was re-experiencing some depression that I've been going through this past year and I had no one to talk to about it. It was one-sided. So I had no voice, I had no processing, I had no conversation, it was just me and staring at a screen and I could just keep going and looking and looking and looking for more answers, but I don't think, well, I know I wouldn't have found them there, but I don't know if most people know that. Like if there's a tightrope of 50% good, 50% can do public harm, I feel like mental health influencers kind of thread that line and lean towards the harm side. But sadly, we have to stop here. Do not worry. Do not have anxiety or stress. We will have so, so much more on the harmful aspects of seeking advice and mental health care on social media 
next week. Mwah. Mwah. Big hug. You need it. Take care of yourself, my friends. Under the Influence is hosted and reported by me, Joe Piazza. Our senior producer is Emily Marinoff. Glynis McNichol is our editor. Abu Zafar is our producer. We got additional production help from Aaron Peterson, and our associate producer is Lauren Phillip. Sound design and mixing from Jackie Huntington. Our theme was composed by Jessica Kranchich. Additional music by Jessica Kranchich and Jackie Huntington. Anna Stumpf is our consulting producer, and we are executive produced by me, Joe, and Nikki Tor. And also a big thank you to Robert Jack, who voiced the passage from Self Help.